Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv We've been fortunate to have several parents of children with rare diseases on Raise the Line recently to learn from and be inspired by their experiences, but none quite so well known as our guest today, John Crowley. Many people in our audience are already familiar with John due to the movie Extraordinary Measures, starring Brendan Fraser, Carrie Russell, and Harrison Ford, and many years of news coverage and books about their family's challenges dealing with Pompe disease, a severe neuromuscular disorder. As a consequence of fighting for new treatments for his own children, John entered the world of biotech, forming several successful companies before becoming president and CEO of Amicus Therapeutics, which focuses on rare and orphan diseases. He also wrote a personal memoir, which I really enjoyed reading and recommend to all of you, entitled Chasing Miracles, The Crowley Family Journey of Strength, Hope, and Joy, co-authored with Ken Curson. I'm really looking forward to learning from him about the challenges of drug development for rare diseases and the impact of new technology on the development of treatments and cures, among other topics. So John, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, Shiv, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure and uh, very, very much looking forward to the conversation. So it's really an honor to have you on. And I feel like I know quite a bit about you already, not just from the movie, but the books. And we also share HBS as, an, uh, as a place we both attended. You gave the class day speech in 97. Your 25th is coming up. I was there in 2016. And the CEO of Elsevier was actually there in 2001. Um, so I know a lot about you. But for our audience's sake, some of them may not have seen the movie or the books. Do you mind giving us kind of your one or two minute overview about your professional background and what got you into rare diseases? Yeah, no, of course, Shiv. And, you know, actually, it's interesting. The business school degree is a good place to start. So when I graduated uh, business school with an MBA and I, you know, for me, that was something I'd set my sights on early in life. And, you know, with my mom having been a waitress when I was young and my dad a cop to go to the Harvard Business School was a great honor, a lot of work, uh, a lot of student loans at the time. But I think, you know, if you look back the day we graduated, if you remember at HBS, if you've got a child when you graduate, many of us would carry the child on the stage with us. And we we actually had two. We had John, who was a couple of years old, and Megan, who was just six months old or so. So I had a kid in each arm. And the dean, you know, everybody kind of laughed at me coming up with two kids. And they give you your diploma, and I'm kind of reaching for a handshake. And then they give you a teddy bear with a little HBS uh, shirt on the teddy bear for each kid. So I got to balance two kids, a diploma, and two teddy bears. And I almost dropped Megan. And there was this big gasp from the audience. Thankfully, I didn't, and I walked off. But in retrospect, it was probably the first sign, kind of unbeknownst to us at the time, that Megan wasn't quite as strong as a six-month-old should be. And, you know, from there, we set out in a journey in life. And I, you know, it's kind of like the old Jewish proverb, we make plans and God laughs. And we made our plans. We moved to California, took a job with a consulting firm. It was kind of a one-year assignment in California. And after we got out there by that fall of 1997, we realized that Megan wasn't doing the things that, uh, you know, an eight, nine, 10 month old should be doing, pulling up in the crib and trying to maybe take their first steps, even crawling, otherwise perfectly healthy, normal child. And again, I'll, I'll condense this quite a bit, but, you know, we went from blood test to muscle biopsy to on March 13th, the Friday the 13th, getting the results in a meeting with the physician and the social worker that Megan had this rare form of muscular dystrophy known as Pompe disease. 
And Eileen and I are silent carriers, so there's no history in our family. Like any one of us are silent carriers for maybe an, on average about a dozen or so rare genetic diseases, but not until you have a child with somebody who's also a carrier. And even then in a disease like Pompeii, only a one in four chance that any of our children would actually manifest with the disease itself. And you know, I remember asking the doctor, is it serious? And, and he said, yes, it's very serious. He said, I don't think she'll live to be a couple of years old. And there's really no science and enjoy the time you have. And by the way, um, your son, Patrick, who is with us at the appointment that he was seven days old, there was a one in four chance he would have the disease and he should be tested. So obviously you go through an awful lot of emotions. We tested Patrick shortly thereafter and he came back positive for the disease. And so in, in a moment, your life changes and it sets us out on this journey to try to learn everything we could about science, medicine, try to meet doctors, all the while balancing a young family, working in a consulting firm, paying off student loans. Life certainly changed in a very short period of time for us. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. And I know you did a lot of research that night and found that study from Duke about animal trials and birds and how birds could maybe fly again with some enzyme replacement therapies, it seemed. And that gave you guys hope that there's, it wasn't a, necessarily a death sentence. There were things that were being done across the world. And you wound up meeting with researchers from the Netherlands and very similar to some of the other rare disease parents we've had on the podcast where they've taken that step to really learn about the condition, network with physicians and researchers. How'd you go from that to then, you know, starting and, and selling successful biotech companies um, and also, can you give us a sense of how successful now your children are? I know, I understand, I think John just had a child, you're now a grandfather. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about Megan before the podcast started. So yeah, maybe both of those would be very interesting to go into. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a journey in life that's coming up on, you know, 25 years since the kid's diagnosis. So you fast forward through all of that, we were able to find a researcher who had some ideas and, uh, we started a small biotech company really because, you know, back then with a handful of employees and about $30,000 in seed capital, the best that they could do for a CEO was me. And I think for us personally, we, we just never wanted to have any regrets. You know, I didn't want to look back years later and regardless of what the outcome could have been for Patrick and Megan, I didn't want to ever have any regrets that we didn't try, that we didn't leave it all on the field. I, you know, pick your analogy. And so that's what we did. And we started that small company and, and eventually it sold to Genzyme. And I went to Genzyme to run their drug program in Pompeii disease and, and other programs. And finally, thankfully, Megan and Patrick began to be treated with a life-saving enzyme replacement therapy that we had developed in January of 2003. January 9th would, would have been my dad's 63rd birthday. And within weeks, we started to see the change. You know, the life-threatening aspect for them at the time, Shiv, was their hearts, you know, two to three times normal size. And within 12 weeks, Megan's heart returned to normal size, normal function. Patrick took a little bit longer, but his eventually did too. And for a time, it made them stronger. You know, then they kind of plateaued. But what we did with so many people's help was to save their lives from the immediate threat um, to give them more quality of life and more time, but also time for us to go back to the drawing board and to think about, okay, you know, this isn't a cure. It's not even, we don't think the best treatment, what else can we do? And that's what led me to found Amicus in 2005. I'm sure we'll come to Amicus and science and what we're doing, but 
the good news for the kids, you know, we've got three kids, our older son, John, who's not affected with Pompeii. John lives with Asperger's, high-functioning autism. And John, during quarantine, fell in love with one of Megan's nurses, and they got married. You know, this is a, a young man who never had a girlfriend at age 27. And um, fell in love, got married, and uh, they just had a baby back in June. So Congratulations. Yeah, Stella Eileen is uh, three months old now and perfectly healthy and watching them mature as parents has just been beautiful. And and thankfully now our, our Megan and Patrick continue to thrive in many ways despite lifelong challenges of living with a disease like Pompeii. They're still in wheelchairs and still require ventilators to breathe. But again, it's, they've had in many ways great quality of life. And Megan was able to graduate from Notre Dame in 2019 uh, the most physically challenged student ever to go through Our Lady's University. She then two years later earned a master's in social work from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So Amazing. she's got a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of Tar Heel blue. She said <laughs> when she went there, she said, Dad, don't worry, I still bleed blue and gold <laughs> like Notre Dame. She said, but the blue just got a little bit lighter on some days. So it's a little Tar Heel in her. <laughs> and awesome. uh, she's just remarkable. And Megan began working as a social worker in the Princeton Middle School in New Jersey, working with the same team that supported her many years ago. And just uh, very recently in early September, Megan took a new job as the, I need to make sure I get this right, or she'll correct me, the assistant director for mission integration at the Make-A-Wish Foundation of New Jersey. So Megan is gonna work on helping to find more eligible children for wishes, making sure their wishes are fulfilled, communications, fundraising, and it's a real passion. Uh, Megan was a wish kid many years ago and that's certainly influenced her life. So she'll continue to work and to give back. And Patrick works in a flower store in Princeton, New Jersey called Vaseful Flowers. It's um, staffed by all people living with physical or cognitive disabilities. So it's a beautiful organization. So, you know, it, life <laughs> life is a journey, right? And um, if you'd told me many, many years ago that this is where the kids and the family would be, I uh, I would have been very pleasantly surprised. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations to, to all of them. And, and certainly the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation news. I, I really enjoyed your commencement speech at Notre Dame where you mentioned you know, one of the leadership lessons you provided to all the graduates was about how you can start small, like leadership oftentimes involves starting small and the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which I know you were chairman of itself, uh, started small, that story of that, that mother who fulfilled her, her son's wish to become a, a cop for a day um, in Arizona. And then unfortunately the, the son passed away four days later, but had the best day of his life because of that. It's really meaningful. And certainly you've, you've had that opportunity with your children and, and many others, I'm sure. Yeah, it is. You know, when you think about the miracle of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, starting with that one child, Chris Gracious, whose wish it was when, when there was no foundation, no 501c3 organization, no board of directors. Uh, it was just a little boy very much in need and a couple of people who came together to make his wish come true. Unfortunately, Chris, just a couple of days later, died from his, uh, his leukemia in 1980. But the legacy that he, his mom, the family, all the volunteers left when they came together a couple of weeks later to celebrate Chris's life and to give thanks. They said, you know, we, we could do this for other kids. Make-A-Wish today is now granted, I think they're well over 300,000 wow. wishes just in the United States alone. And we have a Make-A-Wish International. 
And that all started by a couple of people just doing good for one child. That's amazing. And that's actually a good segue towards drug development because coming up 40 years ago, January 4th, 1983 was the signing of the Orphan Drug Act. And very similarly, several parents of children with rare diseases came together and said, how do we incentivize biotechnology pharma companies to develop these orphan drugs? And obviously that's something you're very familiar with at Amicus. Uh, you know, do you mind talking to us now that we're coming up in 40 years past the Orphan Drug Act? Tell us a bit about Amicus specifically, what you're focused on, and maybe any lessons you've had over the past, you know, you've been in the space 25 years now. What do you see as like the next 10 years we should be doing to accelerate the development of these drugs as well? So when we started Amicus, we had a really big vision. We said we wanted to build a company and we wanted it to be enduring and lasting and we wanted to be a global leader a mission to deliver the highest quality therapies to people living with rare diseases. And we knew back then that there were more than 7,000 rare diseases that taken together affect in just the United States, more than 30 million people, nearly a half a billion people around the world. Um, so taken together, not very rare at all. And, and some of them are well-known, some diseases like a Duchenne muscular dystrophy or a cystic fibrosis, but the vast, vast majority, not only has the, the general public not ever heard of them, most people in the medical profession have never heard. I'd never heard about Pompeii. And when I was first talking about it, I remember my friends who were just finishing medical or had just finished medical school said, oh yeah, I think I know that. It was a trick question on a cardiology exam or a pediatrics exam. And when you think about then the unmet need, we the Orphan Drug Act has been essential to ensuring a market-based environment for proper incentives for companies to invest in R&D to make medicines for rare diseases. Otherwise, there is no business model that would work. But even then, we only have approved therapies for a couple of hundred of those now more than 8,000 known rare diseases, and really only a couple of, a, a couple of approved gene therapies, so real cures. So we've, we've got a long, long way to go. So that's the difficult news. The good news is that I really believe we are on the cusp of this golden age of medicine in genetics, where we're able to you know, much better diagnose these diseases, oftentimes through newborn screening uh, in utero, and, and increasingly to have a range of options to think about how can we treat these. Now, some of those options may not have yet translated to medicines. They may not have even translated to molecules. But when you think about the range of technologies, whether it was the, you know, the older generation enzyme replacement therapies, if it's small molecule oligonucleotides, if it's gene therapy, gene editing, maybe we could talk about a little bit because I really think that has such remarkable promise. Um, when you put all that together, I really am hopeful that over the next decade, maybe two decades, we can really truly start to develop medicines for hundreds, maybe thousands of these rare diseases and really increasingly have very, very safe and effective treatments and many, many cures. So it's super exciting. There are a lot of barriers to get there, but um, it's an exciting time. It's never enough and it's never fast enough though when you or your child has one of these diseases, that's for sure. And that's part of our battleship. To, you know, we, we can beat nature, we think, in the years, decades ahead. We just oftentimes have to beat time, that sense of urgency. The same mindset that we brought to the development of vaccines and medicines and COVID, great science, and that urgency of time. We need to bring that to the rare diseases. Frankly, we need an Operation Warp Speed 
for rare diseases. That's a great point. And I enjoyed your talk. Uh, you gave a talk at Goldman Sachs last year, which I, I watched. And you made that exact point how like, we're capable. Medicine is capable of solving these issues. Clearly, the vaccine was predicted for COVID three to five years and was made in a year. And now, obviously, yeah. it's helped us return, for the most part, to a state of, of, of normalcy without masks and social distancing. Um, let's actually go into some of those therapies you mentioned, gene editing. Uh, one of the rare disease parents we had recently on the podcast is named Akiva Zablocki. He helped start the Hyper IgM Foundation. It's one in a million, uh, which, you know, in aggregate means there's about 70,000 people worldwide who, who have it. But that's a condition where right now bone marrow transplantation is the state of the art for curing it. But for actual gene editing purposes, it's, I think, a single uh, nucleotide goes wrong, I believe, in the Hyper IgM. You know, can you talk about those therapies? You, you mentioned wanting to talk about gene editing. Yeah, gene editing is very exciting. This is a chance actually to kind of correct the mistakes of nature by using these tools that, that have been invented by some of the world's greatest scientists, including scientists like Jennifer Doudna and her colleagues. Uh, you know, Jennifer just recently earning the Nobel Prize for her work in CRISPR therapies. A lot of ways that we can think about gene or genome editing, but you know, at its core, you can think about it in a couple of different ways. There are some diseases where you have a gain of function, essentially, of a, of a gene, something turned on that needs to be turned off. So a kind of a toxic gain of function. Right now, the technology is much better at turning off genes, cut out some of the bad part of the genetic material, and use the technology to turn off bad genes, essentially. Um, what we also need to be able to do, and this is all in vivo, so within the body gene editing, what we also now need to be doing, and increasingly science is leading us there, is to cut out the bad part of the gene, or even sections of the gene, so using something like base editing, and actually then insert the sequence for making a protein, if there's a deficient protein, if it's a toxic loss of function, we might call it. Um, so that's all a very high-level description of an incredibly complex scientific field. But we've seen it with a you know, company I'm on the board of, with Intellia Therapeutics, other companies who have been making substantial progress now in human clinical studies. And even that's just the last couple of years have we introduced this technology into human studies. Obviously, safety is incredibly important in these companies. The innovators, the uh, physicians, the regulators are hyper-focused on safety as they need to be and the appropriate measures of efficacy. So I think it'll be a number of years till we see this become the standard of care in medicine, but you're seeing more and more success. And, and that's really exciting to be able to, I mean, look, when, when our kids were diagnosed and the docs you know, said, I'm sorry, there's nothing that can be done. That's in the next couple of years with the, the range of the power of the technologies we have, that's just not going to be acceptable anymore. And it should be, you know, your child has this disease. We have a range of tools to address it. Here's what we think is the best customized approach for this disease and for your child's genetic background. And here's the plan. That's kind of the dream for many of us in the field, what we want to get to. We always had that ambition and the goal. We just never had the technology. Now we increasingly have the technology in our grasp. And we just need to make sure, frankly, we just need to make sure we don't screw it up. So it's an exciting time. But again, it, it's never enough and never fast enough. So that's where we're so focused on how many of these diseases can we address and how fast can we safely address them? It's very exciting. And again, there's this whole diagnostic odyssey for rare disease parents where it often takes, or patients, 
four to nine years, I think, on average to get diagnosed, largely because, you know, when you were talking about your your friends who were finishing med school and how it was like a kind of a trick question to learn about Pompeii disease. Um, I was in medical school at Johns Hopkins. I'm technically still a medical student. And one of the first things we learn is when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, uh, which is great mm -hmm. advice for value-based medicine. And, you know, but at the same time, that never really sat well with me because I was actually born in Africa. I was born in Namibia. And in Africa, when you hear hoofbeats, you think zebras, not horses. Uh, and so for the nearly half a billion people who have one of 8,000 zebras, rare diseases, you know, we want to shorten how long it takes them to get the diagnosis. And then once they get the diagnosis to get care, some of which will be new therapies, a lot of which will be new therapies, like what you've developed at you and your team at Amicus and Novozyme, et cetera, but some of which will be repurposed therapies. One of our other guests is David Fagenbaum, who I know you probably oh, know well. David's great. Yeah. He's what awesome. A, what, a, what a hero. Yeah. I'll see him next week at the Clinton Global Initiative because Chelsea Clinton was also on the podcast. Yeah. She and yeah. she and Bill Clinton have taken a real interest in rare diseases. So it's an exciting time, I think, and hopefully we can get oh, that great. that warp speed together. I wanted to ask to, you know, our audience comprises millions of current and future healthcare professionals, one of which now is your daughter. She's a social worker, uh, obviously, so she's a healthcare professional. What advice did you give your daughter and or what advice would you give to our audience about meeting the challenges of this moment in history and, and beyond? Yeah, it's, you know, I, we have uh, my daughter, Megan, as a social worker. We have, you know, other family members involved in the healthcare field, a lot of nurses in the family who have come up and Maggie uh, graduating medical school here in a few months. And, you know, what I try to tell all of them is, we say in our companies that we we are patient focused, and many of us increasingly are in the industry. But you have to think about what does that mean. At Amicus, I've tried to lead a company where every one of us thinks, okay, if you had this disease, where you were the mom or dad of a child with the disease, how would you make a decision? Where would you invest your capital? Where would you build a facility? What type of person would you hire? It's a different mindset. And I think anybody involved in the field of healthcare has to think about that. If you're a caregiver, if you're a medical technician, a physician, a nurse, whatever it may be, whatever role you play in this virtuous circle of delivering healing therapies to people in need, to think about what if this was you? Or what if this was your child? What would you do? How would you think? Where would you go? What questions would you ask? So constantly trying to put yourself in people's shoes. Um, you know, you mentioned, Shiv, it's such an important aspect of this in, in the diagnostic odyssey and rare diseases. We're getting better at it. We need to get much better. Expanding newborn screening, you know, it, it's a very disparate system now across all 50 states here in the United States. And in many parts of the world, there is no such thing as newborn screening. In some of these diseases, what a tragedy it would be in the years ahead. If we have therapies and we miss children, and right now the way the system is up, we would miss most of them. You think about fatal brain diseases, diseases we work in like Batten disease. These are neurodegenerative diseases. You can have the greatest gene therapy, gene editing, you know, pick your technology, but you get to a point of no return. You get to points of irreversible damage in brain disease and many neuromuscular diseases. So. Again, that sense of urgency, finding people soon and bringing that mindset to, to your practice of medicine, to your involvement in healthcare in any way. And maybe the last lesson is one of persistence. Um, you just got to keep trying in whatever you're doing because what we do is really, really hard. This is a really hard business. 
really hard to field. That's really wonderful advice. And I know we're coming up in time, but I, I had one and a half last questions for you, if that's okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you at least one answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first is I, I also enjoyed your, your episode with Tim Ferriss, where he calls you the real life Captain America slash oh. Bruce Banner. And as I dug more into that and understood kind of why, and some of your posts on LinkedIn about service, like you've served in Afghanistan, you've obviously served on the board of Make-A-Wish. A lot of your life has been dedicated to service and faith. I'm just curious if you have any uh, words of wisdom to people who I think the last few years have been very difficult for people in general with uh, you know, wars in Ukraine, uh, what happened in Afghanistan recently with the COVID pandemic, any like advice for people who may be feeling a little lost out there as well? And like, what gives you that real sense of service and duty that, that hopefully we can bottle up and also be, a, you know, a therapy for people? Yeah, sure. You know, you mentioned that uh, podcast I did a number of years ago with my friend, Tim, and Tim asked me at the end, and I, I think it's a very much the same question that you're asking um, in terms of motivation and centering, you know, where do you find that true north? And my answer is really, you know, just whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're working on, whatever field, whatever effort you're putting in, just to know that it's bigger than you. It really is to think about that. So it it comes down to, in, in my talk at Notre Dame and the commencement, to talk about leadership, you know, the notion that the world is in urgent need of great leaders, become one of them. doesn't mean you need to be president or king of the world or whatever, start with one mission, one organization, one team, one life. Maybe it's a family member, a friend. You know, if each of us does that, and maybe we develop some economies of scale and think about that, again, that notion of servant leadership. And, you know, we we live it in the military, in my time, in my career in the military. Uh, and it's something that we do in biotech and maybe in biotechnology, we we have an unfair advantage because our mission and our purpose is so very clear. So again, I think for me, it really comes down to kind of that bigger picture issue. And maybe it's trite, but we all are going to be on this earth a remarkably short period of time. So to think, you know, think back years from now, what would you be proud of? What did you accomplish? You know, what we did for our kids, I did it because I, you know, we had to. And I think any parent similarly situated would want to or have to do that. So it, in many regards, it wasn't very special. Um, we just were blessed to have a lot of great people help us and, and frankly, a little bit of luck and maybe a little divine intervention along the way too. I'll take all the above. That's wonderful. What, what great advice as well. And uh, my last question, anything else you want to share with our audience while you have them uh, about biotech, about you, your family, anything? No, look, I, this is an incredibly exciting field. Biotech is, you know, again, it's a really tough job. Almost everything we do, everything we try, it, it doesn't work. And yet still we persist because again, what we do is simply too important. Um, but when it does work, and I think this is true broadly about healthcare, when it does work, when you do save a life, when you do improve a life, you help somebody, I still think it's the best job you can have. Thanks for bringing all this to your listeners too. Incredibly important. Of course, but my hope is many of them will go on and follow in your footsteps and either provide the therapies that you and Amicus are working on or help develop them as well. And so with that, John, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and, and being uh, such a such a positive force and inspiration for many of us. Oh, that's very kind. Shiv, thank you so much. And have a great day. And with that, I'm Shiv Vilani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do our part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, 
please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.